From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, we feature authors from the April 30th Ohioana Book Festival. Frank E. Dobson, Roger Billings, and my first guest, Stephen Markley. Enjoy. Stephen Markley is the author of Publish This Book, which at first I thought was a command, but turns out to actually be your book, right? It kind of is a command, though. Well, it is a command, but I thought you... shout for attention. I thought you were giving me a command when you told me the name of the book. Tell me what it's like. How did you uh, get into the command line book? Well, publishing business. The, the idea was I was a young writer trying to get a book published, which I found incredibly frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so one night, lying in bed, I decided I'll just write a book about how hard it is to write a book mm-hmm. and publish it. Uh, and the entire process is basically documented in the book, along with every kind of weird, bizarre thing that happened in my life in that period. Mm, okay. So it's about getting an agent, finding a publisher, but it's also kind of about, I'm 22 and I don't know what I want to do with myself, but I know I want to be a writer. Okay. Um, so what were these weird, bizarre things that happened? Well, with, uh... you know, during the course, uh, my best friend found out he was unexpectedly going to become a father. Uh, you know, I had the typical post-college falling in, falling out, falling in with the love interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of that kind of becomes uh, part of the narrative. And it was, of course, during the 2008 election, the economy imploded right at the end as I was trying to get it published. So there was no shortage of interesting stuff going okay. on. So you were wearing a Will Write for Food sign? I'm always wearing that. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's on what right the now. name tag is. Right. Tell me about uh, the, how you got a publisher for this book, since you were sending out a, a title that says, Publish This Book. Seems like it might be you know, antagonizing your crowd there. What, to demand that they publish it? To demand it? that they publish this book. Well, I mean, the, the title comes from Abby Hoffman, obviously, mm-hmm. from Steal This Steal Book. This book right. uh, yeah, and so the idea is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm this rebellious youth who's, you know, doesn't want to be part of the establishment, but at the same time, I'd really like it if the establishment would publish my book. Like, that would mm-hmm. be great. So that's kind of the in-joke mm-hmm. about the title. Um, and then it's just, it's just about the process. Is, uh, it's very boring, actually. It's, you know, you find an agent, you find a publisher, you do all the, like, boring work. And sort of the, gi- the gist of the book is making that engaging for the reader so you can use it as sort of a how-to guide, plus it's a fun story to read. Like, that was mm-hmm. my aim in writing it. Okay. And you... Accomplish that aim. Oh yeah. Really, oh, it's great. Oh, it's yeah, fantastic. It's, yeah, book, right? I highly recommend Bestseller, it to your viewers yeah. and okay. readers. Did, yeah. What's yeah. the part of the book that engaged you the most as you were writing it? Was there some part you thought I'm really, really enjoying writing? So my this? my favorite chapter um, is a chapter called "Please Don't Fact Check This Chapter," and it's about memoir fabulism. Obviously, you heard about Greg Mortensen, mm-hmm. Three Cups of Tea. He's been a guest on our show. Oh my God, is that true? That is totally true. Yes. Do you? How do you feel about that now? Like, that's I, you know, crazy. Um, he was. An an interesting guest. He's a very serious guy. And um, so, you know, I also thought that I was in the room with what would potentially be like a Pulitzer, right. not, a, not a Pulitzer, uh, a, a, a Peace Prize winner, yeah. a Nobel or something along those lines at the time, two or three years ago. And um, so it was a very respectful interview. First time I've interviewed anybody that brought their own security regiment. Oh, with all right. Okay. So, which I'm, uh, now it's the second well, time. Well, mine's outside. Yeah, 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 I was going to say. A little bit frightening. Yeah. But um, publish this book, and I mean it. Yeah, okay. yeah oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much about that, about the idea of, of, of fabricating something that you're, you know, saying is true. Not that I'm saying Greg Mortensen did that. Right. Don't sue. Yeah. Okay. But so that chapter is about, and like, it has me, you know, meeting with my drug dealer, teaching underprivileged kids in mm-hmm. uh, rural Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So it has a bunch of made-up stuff in it. Mm-hmm. But often when fans write to me, they don't, some of them don't quite get that. Mm-hmm. So they'll ask about the famous actress I slept with, which is, you know, 
made up. And but I they, love the fact that you're not even giving a name. I, well, that's it's the idea. So, that's so the idea. The that you won't. The uh, you'll have to read the book you for the lies the about the famous yeah, exactly. actress that you slept with. Um, so then you got done with that and. I'm curious about your own reaction to it. You're sitting there writing something like, don't fact check this, and you're yeah. thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing humor, I'm writing fiction. Um, what is what, do you, what was that part of the book for you? How did, I mean, you well, enjoyed doing it. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be a fiction writer. Like, that was my aim. I found that an incredibly frustrating uh, process. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of a part of the book where I got to break away and just be as as nuts as I know I am inside mm -hmm. my own head, okay. as everybody is inside their right, own head. Right. Yeah. And and so that was the to be as nuts as you could be, as crazy as you were right. to be. You were helping underprivileged children. Well, and, but and it's like it's so. much more you know jocular and kind of okay. uh, yeah. You were you were being cruel to helping children. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I see how this is all working out here. Um, what is the next? book that you have in mind? Publish this book again? Is there a sequel? The, the obvious sequel would be selling that book. You know, I spent, I spent a year like basically driving around the country, going to bookstores and getting mm -hmm. in, you know, you know, my own weird little adventures that I always seem to find my way into. But I don't want to do that. I decided not to do that. So I, I, I wrote a novel and right now my agent and I are looking uh, to find a new publisher actually. Okay. So. so make a movie of this book. Was that is next, a possibility, yeah. too. Okay. Yeah, that's a possibility, too. But it seems uh, almost like, I'm curious why you decided not to go the nonfiction route, why you said, I'm not going to talk about the difficulty of going to book fairs, say, right. and, and talking to uh, radio. I, well, and you know, it would, make a, it would make a great book because I was just out there and a nice old lady came up to me and she was very charmed by me and mm -hmm. uh, then she read the back of my book on which the word penis appears within the first two paragraphs and walked right away. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's fun doing stuff like that and it would make an interesting <laughs> it's book. It's fun? Uh, yeah, you got to enjoy it. Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> It's a good time Someone creeping throws out your old book ladies. Down in disgust, and that's a good time. Yeah. You're, you're, that's that's a you got Yeah, you got to egg people on a little. Right? Great, wonderful. Um, so that's your your next thing is a, a novel. It's a novel. And, and what was the name of it again? It, when it comes out, it will likely be called the next great American novel. Okay. So okay. that title know. hasn't been taken already. The great American novel has been taken. Taken. Okay. But not the next. But great they, they don't and they don't have a sequel rights. That's actually that. this is an exclusive. I, you're the first person I've told about that. That's awesome. You just gotta yeah you gotta that's, scoop. That is that is uh, and and a Shh. scoop from somebody that's um, having people throw books down. Yes. And walk out. Absolutely. Um, that's awesome. All right. Well, Stephen Markley, thank you very much oh, for being my here pleasure. and talking to us. On thank you. Writer's Talk. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Stephen Markley. Now, a chat with Frankie Dobson, author of Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death. I'm talking to Frank E. Dobson, Jr., the author of Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks, Whites, Love, and Death. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Well, thank you for having me. So tell me about your book. What is the, what is the story? What's the background? Okay, it's, it's basically um, a novella that is historical fiction, and in addition to that, there are several short stories, but the, the, the centerpiece is a novella, so I'll tell you about that. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. I've lived in Ohio a lot of years, did graduate work at Bowling Green, mm -hmm. uh, have worked at Wright State University, et cetera, et cetera. But this piece is centered in Buffalo, New York. In, in Buffalo, New York in 1980, there was a little-known serial killer known as the 22 caliber killer. Now, the interesting thing about this guy, Joseph Christopher was his name, is that he wanted to kill African-American males, people who look like me, 
And th those were his victims, 13 victims. Jeez. 13 victims in upstate New York, Buffalo, and in New York City as well. In Buffalo, he was known as the 22 caliber killer. In New York City, he was known as the Midtown Slasher. Now, the irony of it is that nobody knows about this killer. But of course, mm -hmm. I grew up in Buffalo, so I would know. Um, and so I really am talking about not only the killing spree and the victims, who I think were rendered invisible because the media never really picked up this case like it has with others more celebrated, mm -hmm or notorious is a better word, serial killers. But the other thing I'm looking at is the effect on the community, and indeed, not only on the community, but on individual families. And so what I end up doing is taking a couple of characters, and as a colleague of mine once said about historical fiction, the, the history is fact, but then the characters are fictional. And so I've got a couple of fictional families, one white, one black, who are trying to come together and help one another through this crisis and chaotic city, mm -hmm. because as, the men are being killed, and the first victim is, a, is an African-American boy by the name of Timothy Dunn, who's a 14-year-old kid who was shot in a car as he was just sitting there. Uh, but what I do with the fictional characters is I give it a human kind of piece where this one guy, African-American, family man, wife, child, and a Caucasian guy who's married, family, and their families kind of know each other. They're coming together, backdropped by this crisis, and so I'm really looking at issues of race, issues of difference, issues of community mm -hmm. uh, by telling the story. Okay. Now, you're a couple, several things are sure, 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 really sure. interesting about that. One is that he goes from the 22 caliber killer to the slasher. Right. So he changes the mode. He changes of, of, of the mode of killing. killing in Buffalo, New York. Actually, the killing, the victims. The first four were African American men who are largely sitting in cars or or something like that. You know. The mm -hmm. second two were actually cabbies, and very gruesome deaths with the cabbies. Their bodies were found and they were mutilated. The next series of killings, um, and he actually is a GI, and so at some point he, he reports to Fort Benning, Georgia, and all of this is documented and documentable. Uh, but in Fort, at, after uh, getting furloughed from Fort Benning in November of 1980, he gets a bus paps around Christmas time, goes up to New York City, and in New York City he's known as the Midtown Slasher. Mm -hmm and because of the, vic the victim's throats were slashed. Um, so did he confess to this? How do they know that he was the one that did all this? They actually, at, at some point, when he goes back to Fort Benning in January of 1981, he gets into a fight, predictably with a black GI. Uh, at some point, he's wounded in the fight, whatever. He's in the base hospital, and they actually hear him talking. I guess he's out of his head on drugs or whatever, and talking about it, he'd actually slain several African-Americans up in New York. Mm -hmm. Now, by this point, there's a massive manhunt. This is 1980, so our country is already in crisis because in 1980, as I do in the book, I talk about the Iran hostage situation, which mm -hmm. is what's happening at that time. Remember, right. the, they had taken, they, remember. They had ta taken some, some of our uh, ambassadors hostage. But in addition to that, I look at not only the Iran uh, situation, but what's going on in the city of Western New York or Buffalo, New York. In particular, George Bush Sr. comes to town. This is an election year. Ronald Reagan is running for president and George Bush Sr. is vice president. In addition to that, Jesse Jackson comes to town mm -hmm. and all of these luminaries have to deal with the city in crisis and, and they have opinions on what's happening. So they speak to the, they the public speak, they about it. They okay. speak to the public about it. So I'm really trying to, to kind of capture the history, but in addition to the history, looking at how the community and the families, again, these particular families come together to try to you know, heal the okay. wounds that, 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 are, that have been opened by this. Right. And in terms of a serial killer, I mean, uh, I'm not 
terribly familiar, but I thought most of their victims were um, the same. You're talking about there's a kid and then there are men and there, so that seems sort of unusual in this case and hard to tie together. Very hard to tie together. And at first when the killings happen, there's not a sense of these are a series. There's one random killing here, like I said, of a 14-year-old. Then there's a family man who's killed, who's mm -hmm. an engineer. Then there are a couple of cabbies killed later on, and one of the cabbies is 17 years old. So you've got a mm -hmm. range. Right. And, and there's hysteria going on. At one point, and I did this, I talked about this earlier in a reading today, I was reading from a portion of, of, of the book where I talk about the fact that the African-American community is obviously up in arms. And at some point, they want the federal government to get involved, not simply the local government, but the FBI. And the FBI does get involved. And the case that the FBI makes is an intriguing one because a couple of the victims are sitting in parked cars outside of restaurants. The feds are able to use the old civil rights legislation from the sit-ins where, remember, the feds got involved because you had African-Americans who were sitting at Woolworths counters and lunch counters and were denied the right to public access, mm -hmm. i.e., anybody should be able to sit at a lunch counter. Well, they use that same legislation because these guys are killed while sitting in a public eating establishment, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the parking lot. They use that to get into... You know, to, for the feds to get in, but that's a sort of interesting sort of linkage between this and the civil rights movement. And so mm -hmm. I talk a little bit about the, the curious irony of that. Okay. So what got you into writing? This is your, your first book? My second book. Second, second book. book. Second book. What, what, where did you start? Well, you know, as a writer, um, and, and you know, obviously you're in the media, I think there are always stories that need to be told. And so growing up, Buffalo, New York, African-American church is a notion of the testimony. Somebody's got something that they need to say. Mm -hmm. And it's important not only for them, but for others in the audience. And so for me, the whole notion of writer is testifying, witnessing, articulating a story that not only will be helpful to me, but hopefully helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that's what got me going. Okay. Yeah. And so you've got, you said other stories in this, so you're, you're doing multiple genres, you're doing a novella, you're doing short stories. Yes. What ties all that together? You just, there's sometimes there are stories that are you feel have much more to be delved into than the short stories? Yeah, yeah. Really, the theme um, is people trying to come together to create community. One of the stories entitled Black Messiahs Die is about a young African-American male who's going to be the next great African-American basketball player, a la LeBron James, Ohio's own LeBron James. But what happens is he gets shot by a cop right before the NBA draft right before he makes millions of dollars for the next shoe company and his agents. And so the agency gets involved, right? Because mm -hmm. this kid's gonna be worth 90 million, 100 million. His family gets involved. And so, and, and, and a young lawyer who's Caucasian American, who has befriended him, who's sort of a clerk for, for the agency, gets involved. And for her, it's not simply about the killing of Jonathan, who's gonna be the next great young basketball player. But this was her friend. He was like her little brother, even though he was African-American and she's white. And so it becomes personal. And I'm not only looking at issues of violence, but again, issues of community, mm -hmm. issues of coming together, and, 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 and I would argue also issues of exploitation, because she's questioning whether or not she wants to get into this business now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's, what is it that you're working on now? What's your next? Oh my, I'm doing some scholarly things, but in, in addition to that, I'm working on another novel about an African-American uh, gospel choir, sort of like uh, The Big Chill, 
where you know people come back after a 20-year reunion and they've gone everywhere and okay. done and, and all of that. So Kevin so Costner's dead in a casket at the beginning. Exa of it. Is that the, okay. Exactly okay. that kind of thing. That yeah. kind of thing. Well, his career lately might support that. Sorry, kind of. Yeah, yeah, um, true. The, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, what uh, you said you're doing some scholarly things. What are uh, how are you involved in the scholarly things? Are, uh, I don't think we've gotten into your background that leads yeah, to that yeah. yet. Um, as I said, I, I did graduate work at Bowling Green, so mm -hmm. I have a PhD from Bowling Green in English. So I do some scholarly oh, a work. PhD in English. I'm so sorry. I have it oh. as well. That's oh. Yeah, I know. I feel yeah. your pain. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Kids get your BAs. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, and, anyway. and then go make some money. <laughs> <laughs> What's the scholarly work you're doing? The scholarly work right now. I'm looking at a couple of pieces. One of which is looking at the image of the African American male, which is one of my issues, mm -hmm. uh, in uh, contemporary film, but in contemporary film in leadership positions. There's a little known mm -hmm. film called The Man, mm -hmm. based upon the Irving Wallace novel, The Man, written in 1964 about the first African-American president, who's impeached in the novel. Right. So I, so I read that novel not too long ago, and I realized, okay, there's something there. But the interesting thing is that novel was made into a movie called The Man, mm -hmm. starring James Earl Jones, 1972. She can't find the movie. And the interesting thing, and so I'm, do, I'm doing a scholarly piece on depictions of African Americans in the role of president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But centering in on the man, the movie, and the novel, because the interesting thing about, about the movie is that it was originally made to go into uh, for TV, mm -hmm. but they couldn't okay. get any sponsors. This is 1972. Mm -hmm. you know, so sponsors are not necessarily going to want to back right. a movie about the first African-American as president. That's why you can't find it. Because That's it, why you can't find did it. Did it ever get broadcast or was it? No, sir. No, okay. no sir. So, so there, are little, there are a few copies out there somewhere. So yeah. I'm, we're working on that. James Earl Jones has got to have a copy somewhere. Ex yeah. You know he's got a copy. A <laughs> <laughs> great actor. Yeah, um, uh, I tried to impersonate him. This is CNN, but it doesn't work. Hey, you know? You know? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old joke because I don't even think CNN um, has voiceovers anymore. They can't afford it. Sorry, CNN. Anyway, I want to thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. Frankie. Dobson Jr., PhD, for being here on Writer's Talk. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Frank E. Dobson. We close today with Roger Billings, a Lincoln scholar. Roger Billings has a book called Abraham Lincoln Esquire, the legal career of America's greatest president. So welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you very much. There are tons of books written about Abraham Lincoln. Tell me how you got started on this one and what led to your interest in what I'm assuming you thought was a, an underrepresented part of Lincoln lore. Yeah, it actually, I'm not the only one that assumes that. Uh, the, <laughs> the legal career is brand new. Uh, the, Lincoln, mm -hmm. the, the research is, is uh, virgin territory. Okay. Within the last 20 years, uh, they've discovered about 100,000 documents that relate to Lincoln's cases and put them on the web. Really? And so I, I'm a lawyer and I'm interested in Lincoln, the Lincoln legal career because of that. Um, there are dozens and dozens of topics. You can just do all kinds of things in Lincoln studies. And this is the last of them that hasn't been fully reported. Mm -hmm. You've know, got Lincoln the commander-in-chief of the army. How did he behave as commander-in-chief? That's been done. Uh, Lincoln the Family Man, Mary Lincoln, that's been done. Mm -hmm. Lincoln and Ann Rutledge, that's been done. Lincoln and his politics and his joke telling, that's been done, book after book. But now we're beginning to get a lot of books on, uh, and mine's the latest, on Lincoln's legal career. Okay. So what is, as you went through it and you were writing about it, what surprised you about it? 
what did she say? Oh, I think this is really a unique discovery. Without giving away the book, which I think the endings are known. <laughs> I'll give, yeah, give away the whole uh, plot mm -hmm. of the, the, the novel. Yeah, yeah. It's not a novel. Uh, but uh, no, the deal is that uh, Lincoln's legal career has been kind of a mystery because uh, some of his cases were famous a long time ago. People knew he, people think he was a great uh, defender of murderers and uh, uh, otherwise, railroad cases, big time railroad cases. Uh, he handled some cases uh, that had to do with the river boats. These were all money cases, big mm -hmm. money cases. So people thought he's, he's really an interesting big time lawyer. He wasn't. He was a debtor creditor lawyer, I found. But, and I wasn't the only one that ever discovered that, but I kind of documented it, and it's documented in this book. So what would you compare that to today? I mean, are there still, uh, I mean, you say a debtor-creditor lawyer. Is that a, a certain branch that still exists yeah, that's it, really popular? Sure, sure. Uh, lawyers uh, make their living, uh, many of them, uh, as bankruptcy lawyers. Okay. So that's... And, mm -hmm, that's a related subject. Lincoln was a bankruptcy lawyer while the, the brief time the Bankruptcy Act in his day was still was in existence. It's, mm -hmm. it, it was only there for one year. Funny story, but he was the number one one of the number one bankruptcy lawyers while it existed this Bankruptcy okay. Act. But the rest of the time he did what a lot of lawyers do: they collect money. You've heard about the uh, the mortgage problem, the serious mm -hmm. mortgage problem today. That would have been Lincoln trying to foreclose on mortgages. Right. So he would have had the commercial, what kind of commercial would Lincoln have run today? Then you're saying, you know, foreclosure, Honest Abe, you know, big banners behind him. Is that what you're getting at in the book? Yeah. If he no. was doing it today, maybe if he were doing it today, he would do something like that. But in his day, mm -hmm. they didn't uh, advertise specialties. In fact, his being a debtor, a creditor lawyer, a collection lawyer, they call him, that was really what everybody had to do in those days because mm -hmm. that was collecting notes was a big deal. People didn't pay money by paying uh, dollar bills to people. They would sign a note, and the note would then pass from hand to hand until somebody collected it. Uh, the note would circulate like a dollar bill almost. Really? Yeah, well, sometimes. How did you know it's not forged, though? How, how would you? Uh, oh, you wouldn't. Uh, you'd take that risk. Wow. You wouldn't. It doesn't seem there was a lot of forged, there were a lot of forged notes in those days, though. I haven't seen forgery cases. Really? That's yeah. that's fascinating. It, it goes towards the tenor of the times, I guess. There was a much greater sense of honesty and reliability or, mm. you know? I really don't know exactly what the answer to that is. You know, I think you've just suggested my next uh, Look, article. Awesome. That's uh, half for finder's fee I, I, well, right here. Uh, yeah. yeah, you'll get to just about <laughs> what I get for it, zero. <laughs> Tell me about Lincoln. One of the things that I've always been interested in is they say, well, he, like he taught himself everything he knew about the law. He was reading books. What were the requirements for a lawyer in Lincoln's time? Did he have formal schooling? Is it just something that, that isn't covered very much? Well, no, he didn't have formal schooling. I don't know where you picked that up. You, you're a, a budding Lincoln scholar. That's mm -hmm. absolutely correct. He was mm -hmm. not uh, schooled in any way. He was found by a lawyer um, while they were serving together in the Black Hawk War, a man named uh, John Todd Stewart. Uh, saw him as a rough diamond mm -hmm. and uh, said to him, I think you could be a good lawyer. And uh, Lincoln was in his 20s and uh, self-educated and he said, yeah, I think I can too. I don't want to be a farmer, he says. I don't like manual labor. So he taught himself over a period of two or three years by reading every book that John Todd Stewart recommended he read. Mm -hmm. And he uh, then went to Springfield and Stewart introduced him to Supreme, Supreme Court justices and vouched for his integrity. And he, the Supreme Court justices asked him a few questions. We call them softball questions today, not, not difficult. 
and Lincoln answered them well, and with all the recommendations for him, uh, he was pronounced a lawyer. And you become a lawyer in those days when the Supreme Court just, Justice writes you into the scroll uh, of lawyers, just puts you on the list that the Supreme Court recognizes. It's as simple as that. Wow. When did that get, when did they move away from that practice? It seems like an unsustainable as the country grew that the Supreme Court justices would meet yep. every lawyer. Every, every Supreme Court uh, controls their own lawyers and they all make different rules. So the last, there may be one state left in the country, I'm not sure what it is, where they actually still allow you to read law and prove uh, that you're capable of being a lawyer. <clears throat> almost all states now and almost every lawyer has to go to law school and that probably started um, something like um, 60, 80 years ago when it was almost universal that you went to law school. Mm -hmm. But during the 19th century when Lincoln was uh, a lawyer and afterwards you read law in a law office until the lawyer in the law office recommended you to the Supreme Court as being ready. Mm -hmm. And then you would take the bar exam which may or may not be just an oral exam or, um, and, and I don't know when the written part of it started coming forth, mm -hmm. but Supreme Courts now universally don't do that informal way anymore. Yeah, I'd be surprised. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Seems like there's a lot of room for problems to arise out of that, a lot of potential for abuse. Uh, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So when you now go out and talk about the book, what is your boilerplate kind of response to somebody who says, well, what did you, what was this book about besides just Lincoln as a lawyer? Well, I like to tell people that this book uh, maybe is unique in all, among all the books about Lincoln the lawyer. The last two chapters are about his presidential career and the fact that as a lawyer, he had to uh, use his legal training uh, as a president uh, to answer questions. Uh, you know, uh, he, he was not, for example, um, an international lawyer. He knew nothing about international law, but he was confronted by Great Britain with the possibility Britain would come into the war on the side of the South in the first year of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a, a possibility that came to him, and he didn't know what to do, but no one else seemed to know much better, and his common sense and his legal training allowed him to make the right decision, mm -hmm. which, was, <laughs> which was to tell Great Britain they'd do whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> so, I don't want you coming into the war. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in America said, hey, bring Britain on, yeah, we'll, we'll take those guys. We beat them once before, you know? And <laughs> it, was, it was horrible, but Lincoln yeah. uh, became uh, an instant international okay. lawyer. Now, I may have my um, Lincoln facts wrong, but suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Oh, that's, are you a law student? No, I am not, I am not. Not I, bad, I, not bad. Not bad. Um, one of the big problems of his uh, time was that suspension of well, the writ of right. habeas corpus. That's absolutely right, you picked that up. But he's a lawyer, and he was behind that. He, and, he, and he did it, he knew, yeah. uh, the problem was, unfortunately, he was a lawyer and knew how bad it was to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. He mm -hmm. knew what he was doing and he knew that it was um, a, um, a travesty on the Constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, but he felt it was necessary and today we have a book uh, one month that says he was horrible uh, and a book another month that says he had to do it and he knew what he was doing and let's get behind him. Mm -hmm. it's, it's still a controversy. Well, and it's a controversy because I think there were, um, there are many people who brought this up as parallels uh, to other acts um, during the war on um, terror, still going, the ongoing. And I mean, that's where I think I've heard this um, for better or worse brought up that's over right. and over and said, you know, is the, uh, um, the Patriot Act the sus uh, equivalent to the suspen suspension, which I don't think really it is. But 
it, it was an interesting sort of argument. How much of that do you cover in the book since you're going over the lawyer? Well, there's a whole chapter on the chapter. suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. That's happened during his presidency, and uh, it's one of the two chapters, writ, suspension of the writ and some other problems he mm -hmm. had during the presidency, and then the international law chapter. Uh, the other ten chapters are about his legal career per se from mm -hmm. day one, uh, and his debtor-creditor law and his legal ethics. One chapter is about whether he was an ethical lawyer, because I wrote that chapter. I know about that one. Uh, that <laughs> I better. Um, there, he, I read about uh, 300 lawyer letters, that he, client letters that he wrote as a lawyer to the client. So he wrote these 300 letters telling the client what he was doing for them, and it reveals whether he practiced law ethically, uh, how he collected fees, mm -hmm. lots of stuff that nobody paid any attention to. So you, you're not going to tell us because you want you to read the book. Well, but yeah. But you, you have a, in, you yeah, come. it's going to cost you. Yeah, but you, you, you come down with a definitive uh, notion of whether he was an ethical lawyer, if I, such I a thing we, exists. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think we do. I think we really do. There are two chapters here on how Lincoln practiced law and whether the modern day lawyer would uh, be comfortable with what Lincoln did because there were no ethics committees uh, then. Uh, the Bar Association today will, will, will cream a lawyer uh, that uh, they find his, <laughs> has uh, committed an ethics violation, a serious violation, such as misuse of client fees or uh, breach of the conflict of interest or breach of confidentiality. All these things can get you disbarred. Mm -hmm. Well, there was nothing that would disbar a lawyer in Lincoln's day. I don't know. I guess the judges would tell him that They scratch not. your name off the scroll. <laughs> you know, they I, white I, it out. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> White it out. Uh, scratch off sounds better. Uh, yeah. I never heard of that either. Being scratched off the roll doesn't seem to have been anything I heard <laughs> of in Lincoln's time. Well, it would so, be hard to maintain a consistent roll uh, if you were scratching people off. That's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> and a little bit arbitrary. The book is Abraham Lincoln, Esquire. Mm -hmm. The uh, author is Roger Billings, and you're author editor, right? I'm one of the two editors. My co-editor, Frank Williams, is the former, is the retired Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Well, thank you very much, Roger Billings. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guests, Stephen Markley, Frank E. Dobson, and Roger Billings. More information on these authors can be found at www.writerstalk.org. Join us next time for James B. Stewart, recent Thurber House guest and author of Tangled Webs, How False Statements Are Undermining America, from Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. <laughs>